Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist. And we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back to The World Awaits. Um, I've got to tell you, Kirsty, my co-host, uh, is still in her sick bed. Kirsty, we are still missing you. We still want you to get well soon. However, Alastair is back with me in the co-host's chair. So great to have you back, Alastair. I'm oh, very happy to be here with one of the nominees for Travel Writer of the Year with the Australian Society of Travel Writers. Congratulations, Belle. That's so exciting. I know. Oh, oh, I, am, I am super excited that the nominations were just announced this week. Oh, and yeah, I'm pretty chuffed about the whole thing. The winner is going to be announced in late November. So if you hear from me, it means I've won. And if you don't hear anything, if we never speak of it again, then it means <laughs> that, that I am not the 2023 Australian Society of Travel Writers, Travel Writer of the Year. So um, yeah, thank you. That's very kind of you. Best of luck. And unless you've been living under a rock, you'll be very aware that Halloween is just around the corner. And because we can find travel in every conversation, <laughs> we're going to share some of the spookiest destinations around the world. And, and we've got research to prove it. <laughs> yes. Uh, Planet Cruise, which is an independent UK-based cruise agency, did the legwork and reckons that the world's most haunted place is Mary King's Close, just off the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Named after a fabric trader who lived there in the early 1600s, it was an open laneway that was eventually built over and became an underground alley used to house plague victims of the Black Death in the late 1600s who are said to haunt it. Yeah, do you know, I actually know this close because I lived in Edinburgh for about a year and I went to a party one night in this building because the incredible thing about it, you know, the building was just a regular, like an alleyway or a wind, and then it got mm. the buildings built over the top and it became underground. So I went to I went to a party in an apartment in one of the buildings on the top of it. And I remember at about 10 p.m. over the top of the loud music, I'm hearing this incredible screaming, horrific, like a woman being murdered. And, and, and I freaked out. Everybody at the party freaked out. And the people, except the people who lived in the apartment who were like, yeah, every night around 10 o'clock, that's when the ghost tours go through. And they were very cheap apartments, but, um, <laughs> you know, but it was, you know, it's real. I've, you know, everybody says it's completely haunted. So I'm going to agree with that one. And they even do things like true crime tours through the clothes. So it is super spooky. You know, it's underground, it's dank, it's dark. It's, it's got it all going on. Love it. I've been there as well. Uh, I was about 12 years old when I went. Uh, I didn't, and it was daytime, obviously, because I was a child and my parents aren't that irresponsible. Uh, <laughs> we didn't have anything spooky happen to us. Um, but yeah, very interesting to hear, hear about your experience. Oh, others, yeah. others in the top 10 list include the Eastern State Penitentiary, an abandoned prison in Philadelphia, and the Catacombs of Paris and the Tower of London. Yeah, you know, I was at the Tower of London earlier this year, and it is very atmospheric. Actually, I met the first female, the first ever female beef eater out there. She was amazing. So, oh, wow. yeah, I know she's like an SAS trained SAS commando, and that you know the beef eaters have got to have had active service before they do that job. She was incredible. Um, but you know, the British royal family has had a pretty bloody history, so. Um, it was actually really well presented, and if you can find a quiet corner, it's quite spooky with loads of 
eyeless suits of armour. But actually, speaking of eyeless suits of armour, um, I'm surprised that one of the most well-known haunted hotels, which is the Fairmont Band Springs in Canada, isn't on the list. It is hands down haunted. I stayed there years ago, terrifying red walls, coats of armour in unexplained corners. And actually, a fellow journalist I was staying with there the room she was in, her lights went on and off all night. And it's, and like, like literally she turned them off and then, you know, there was just noise and, and the lights would come on. How terrifying is that? I mean, oh, that's well, they say, they, they, they say it's quite a nice, a, a nice, um, a nice ghost, like the old Scottish bellhop haunts the place. And, and I, I totally believe it. Spooky, spooky. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, yeah. I've, I've had a similar experience a lot closer to home, um, which may or may not be a good thing. Uh, when I first moved to Melbourne now five years ago, which feels not that long ago, uh, one of the first things that we did was go to Werribee Zoo uh, and go to the Werribee Mansion. We did the audio tour where you walk through with the headphones in your ears. Um, and the whole time they're like, this place is very, very haunted. There's lots of activity, so don't get too freaked out. It's nothing bad. Nothing happened for most of the day. So I was like, you know, it's just one of those. Yes, this place is haunted. And we went upstairs to the nursery, uh, which is still full of toys from that era. Oh, um, so the toy. old horses. <laughs> and it was just myself and my partner in the room. He closed the door and I'm walking around. I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit creepy in this room. I'll, I'll admit it. Uh, and we were standing by the window and one of the rocking horses was on the complete opposite side of the room by the door. And I, I, no word of a lie, it started rocking. And I'm a flight person, so I just ran. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it has quite a bloody history though, because, you know, it used to be, um, it was a, a Catholic se seminary for priests. But before that, I think there was, um, you know, there was a suicide attached to it. And, um, yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, it's like quite a hive of activity. Yeah, yeah. There is a woman who does, who does too, um, who does plays there. And, um, yeah, and, and she reckons it's just riddled, you know, and, and the staff do not like closing up. So, oh, oh okay. okay. It was just the children that were out for me that day. Oh, and those creepy dolls with the eyes that yeah. don't shut. Oh, no, don't go there. Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Or if you're in Irish, happy Psalm, you know, if you're going back to the Celtic origins of it. Um, I hope you get lots of lots of candy, Alistair. Next up, Belle's guest is Flip Burns, an Australian powder hound, journalist and author based in Germany. An accomplished skier, snowboarder, splitboarder and even a kite skier, snow is in her blood. She's the great-granddaughter of Antarctic explorers and today she talks to Belle about her new book, Ultimate Skiing and Snowboard. Hey, Flip, congratulations on the launch of your new book, Ultimate Ski and Snowboarding. It's so great to have you on The World Awaits. I am so excited to be here, Bill. Thank you for having me. And I just look forward to talking about my favourite subject, which is snow and lots of more snow. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I mean, you've managed an absolutely heroic task of shortlisting in your book 
50 ski destinations from around the world for skiers, for snowboarders. You've been in Europe, North America, you're touching on Japan, Australia, New Zealand. So as one who has covered pretty much the globe and all things snow, what is happening in the world of ski? What are the standout developments for people looking forward? Really good question, Bill. Um, the, the book was 50,000, 60,000 words. So basically I've just done a PhD in ski resorts around the world. And I can I can honestly say I don't think that there is anyone who knows as much about the ski world as myself in this exact moment, simply because so much has happened since COVID and so much happens before the winter season especially that, that there's lots of new information out there. So trying to be current across the entire globe was a really big thing to do. But something's really stood out for me with the coming season. Um, and some of the, the up-and-coming resorts, for example, one to watch would be Big Sky in the USA. And have you heard of Big Sky, Bell? Is that the one in Montana? It is. Bingo. Okay, because lots of people haven't heard about it, which is so odd because it's the third biggest ski area in the USA. And they're just about to feel, fulfill a $250 million renovation of the lifts and the town. So if you haven't heard about Big Sky, I'm sure that you will. And it's also really easy to access through Bozeman. It's like 30... One of the best accessed areas in the USA, 30 flights a day. So I still don't understand why right next to Yellowstone Park, it gets overlooked in the big menu, you know, of options that is the USA skiing. Um, another one that really jumped out at me was Revelstoke in Canada. Revelstoke is, you know, the quintessential community kind of town, I guess, that Canada's famous for ski resorts. Lots of character. And they've got this program called Roam, R-O-A-M, which stands for I think, oh, I can't even remember, but basically it's, a, it's an outdoor art program. So so they're putting like art along the runs. They're putting um, the art alleries uh, in the, and the alleys of Revelstoke. The funny thing was it was anonymous. No one knew who was doing it. It was people getting out there at 11 p.m. at midnight and putting all this art up. So finally they're funded and that, that's become a really, um, you know, big thing. And when I'm looking at stats of ski resorts and you know run lengths these things don't stay with me but things like Rome um, and then in Altabadia in Italy where horses pull skiers across a slope an actual lift bell is you there's a series of horses with ropes behind them you grab onto the rope they tell the horse to giddy up and off you go and that what as, as a ski it's lift a, it's a ski lift it's a horse ski lift I know it's called Jory um, because it's just too hard on that little section to put in a little rope tower. It wasn't worth the money. So they're like, we'll get, you know, 15 horses, we'll get 15 horse leaders and with ropes. And there you have part of your lift pass is going, yeah, a hundred meters, uh, behind a horse. So, I mean, but Italy is a, a yeah, Italy is beautiful and, <laughs> and especially with, um, the cost of living and inflation, which is squeezing even the Europeans, um, as well. So suddenly Italy is having a sweet spot that it's just never had before. It's got the Olympics coming up in 2026 and um, the price is right and the food's amazing. So yeah, Italy is one to watch out for overseas for sure. And there's another, there's a bit of a dark horse as well. Um, Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan, did you? Milo blown my mind on this one. (laughs) My my thing, Azerbaijan, deserts, oil, hot. Tell me, tell me it's not. Um, and a potentially future leading ski area. I know these are some of the crazy things I stumbled across, Bill. Uh, so Greece, again, has some great ski areas, which you wouldn't expect. Um, even in Morocco, I know they do. They've got really, 
you know, not surprisingly, there the runs are called Zeus and, you know, lots of uh, mythology <laughs> names that go I on in that, that result. I know. Also in Argentina, funnily enough, Argentina, uh, the Lenius has lots of Roman and Greek mythology names for the for their lips, which are really odd. So I was putting all these things together. And then Azerbaijan was interesting. In the course of researching some of these places, I found a guy who's a ski instructor who used to work at Aspen Snowmass, who I work for. I should disclose that. I do their marketing plans. Um, found this guy in Azerbaijan and he was telling me about the ski area. And I, I said, why have you got a gondola, which is so much money. Lots of ski resorts starting out do not buy gondolas. Uh. Um, and they've got like our pre ski areas, and this great base lodge. And he was like, I am the private ski instructor to the president of Azerbaijan. And he is the keenest skier you will ever meet. Cue government funds being funneled <laughs> towards making a ski area. So, oh my goodness. I know, I know. It's, it's crazy and it's really cosmopolitan. That's incredible. So it's going to be it's going to be a whopper. The next season is going to be enormous around the world. I mean, you, you mean yes. it did bring up the money here. So, I mean, Japan is so achingly oh. popular for Australians, especially, you know, it was closed for COVID for a long time. We all had Jap- Japan mm. withdrawals. And yes. traditionally it, it's offered good value, deep powder, mm. a big side serve of a fabulous culture as well, which, you know, sometimes yes. when you go on sport holidays, you might... You know, you could be on the moon or you could be in Tasmania and mm. wouldn't know the difference. Is exactly. Japan the place we should be booking for our next ski holidays? <laughs> okay, this is a great one. Um, again, I did a PhD on ski resorts. I could do a uh, a master's just on Japan and, and, and what's kind of been happening with it. So, well, during, as we came out of COVID last season, which was the, you know, 22-23 season, it still wasn't sure up until June if if Japan was going to open. Even until October, we didn't know if places in Japan were going to open. And the thing was, none of the ski wholesalers were really selling Japan because if you did take a gamble that you were going to go, you were not only not going to get your money back as a refund, but you would not even get credit. You were literally just putting money into a black hole and hoping that you that you would, you know, get somewhere to stay. So so people didn't just miss out on the COVID years. They missed out on last year as well when everybody was going to all the other places. So Japan is up, according to a ski operator, which is Ski Max, 900% this year. I mean, okay, it's come from nothing because it's come from almost zero, but it's gone to 900%. So really popular resorts for the reasons that you just stated, like, you know, big side serve of soul, lots of character. You get that foreign experience as well as a ski trip um nazawa onsen sold out in july so if you had booked by i mean completely sold out for january cannot get a room there so yeah so if you didn't book early you won't be going to japan this year (laughs) also 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 with flights and then the thing about japan is like what is it bell that it just makes people crazy because it's it's famous for powder now um, I was there when I went there and was researching some things for two weeks. Uh, there was a stretch of seven days where I had no new snowfalls. So the powder theory, and it has got great snow, but like anywhere, it is about timing. And I do feel that some people go there with these huge expectations that sometimes aren't met. And the other thing is that if you're a family, do you want powder? I mean, people say, I love powder, but do you really? Like, you know, have a deep soul search. Do you want your six-year-old in need deep powder? And the answer is probably... <laughs> No. So so Japan is an absolute winner for, yes, powder hounds, couples, singles, your girls trip, your boys trip. Family holidays, I'm still on the fence about unless you've got a club med 
trip, for example, that has all the facilities that you need for, especially for younger kids. So, um, and where where would you say? Oh, sure. Um, okay, so they now they've gone from three to five club meds in Japan simply to accommodate this Japan. So they've um, this demand. Sorry. So they've got them in um, at Tomaso. Uh, they've just opened two more in Hokkaido. Um, and I wish I could remember all the names, but they've got five. So that's what you need to know. And then, um, they're opening two more in Kororo is the last one that they're opening, um, well, just in a couple of months now. So yeah, so they've got, uh, a big demand because of that gap where people were in Japan, but didn't know what to do with little kids. So good. So Club Med has just come along and filled that gap. And just last on the Japan thing, cause I worked for Aspen, we were finding, you know, that market share that went to Japan when it started early on. We gained back because it just didn't have the infrastructure and that luxury offer offerings. Mm. Um, and now with all of the airfares to America so high, there's been a big swing back to Japan. So I watched Japan very closely um, as a big competitor to the ski world. Mm. And yeah, interesting things are happening. It'll always be a favorite. But um, yeah, year by year, the situation do does change. You really have to have a good look at Japan if you want to go there. So it sounds like the pendulum's actually swinging back to places like Italy, which you mentioned is in that in that um, beautiful moment yeah. of of being that sweet spot. Which yeah, uh, yeah. It's always weird when you put uh, Europe ski and affordable into the one sentence. You go, well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. But this is why, like this year, is such. A, I'm so glad I did the research this year because things just aren't relevant compared to what they were in previous years. So. At the moment, as we speak, um, airfares to the US are for the first time on par with airfares to Europe. So coming out of, wow. of COVID, yeah, Europe never used to sell in Australia, you know, like to the very few. Suddenly, Austria, who's got a very better price point than Switzerland, Italy with that sweet spot, and France, which everybody loves, huh. have suddenly got like significant bookings. By significant, I mean they might be up 10%, but that's like, you know, 20 more families than five families or whatever. And, and what we find is that, People are so desperate now to do that bucket list trip. Europe is always a bucket list trip. So now they're doing it, adding in the ski component as well, having a longer one, but they might not be there next year because it is that bucket list. So then they might swing back to Japan and to the States. So as I'm tracking this global migration of ski bookings around the world, um, it's which I have been doing, it's really hard. This is what I, I love strategy. I'm a total geek when it comes to strategy and numbers and data. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see what's happened, you know, kind of Europe's having this unprecedented thing, you know, Japan is going gangbusters, US is holding on, we'll come back. And then there's always Canada, which is, uh, you know, for a certain type of skier, you know, you've got Whistler and then you've got these really cool powder highway, which is called string of resorts, which have got full of character, like, like, um, you know, um, Red Mountain and, and Revelstoke. Oh, amazing. So look, let's go totally off piece. Yeah. If, if you had to choose... An absolutely standout adventure, far from the crowds, um, and probably far from small children as well. If skill, experience, and money were no object, oh. where would you be going? Now you're talking. Did you just say no money? Eyes and objects. Money was no object. Oh yes. Well, <laughs> let's let's together grab our sacks of money and let's go to Greenland. Ooh. Let's go. Okay, heli skiing. Heli skiing, I love heli skiing, but if you really want to be, have that out experience, you don't even want the whir of a propeller blade. You know, you want that icy ice cap kind of silence. So the reason why places like Greenland, Norway, Lofoten Islands is just going massive at the moment, up, up around Svalbard, you know, that kind of Arctic area. Yeah. Um, 
And the reason is that there's just nowhere like it, you know, like skiing under a midnight sun, for example, because you can ski all the way up into April. Um, but going into those areas, you'll need as much money as you can because <laughs> insurance. So this is not, but okay, you've got to get there. But then there's the insurance belt. Did you know? So I did a trip across um, kite skiing across Greenland. This is like oh, a good 15 years ago. And um, sponsored by the North Face and carrying all our gear. So like a sled with 80 kilograms on it. And they would put our kites up and, and, and sail across when we could on skis. Um, and what cost me the most money was the insurance. It was $5,000 for my English teammates because we're a team. It cost them 800 pounds. And I was like, why do Australians cost so much more money um, than Europeans? And when you come over to, to this part of the world, the Northern Hemisphere for skiing and boarding, the premiums for an Australian can skyrocket. Why? I don't know why. Um, when it comes to, as soon as you get into what's called expedition insurance, which is things that involve crevasses or ropes, uh. they couldn't tell me. All I could think is how many Australians have been falling down crevasses and needed helicopter rescues? Like, is that what's put the premium up so much? So the difficulty was A, even give, getting expedition insurance. And then the second one was paying for it because in my budget, I was, you know, $4,000 under what you know, that was that was going to cost me. So because I'd budgeted 800 pounds like, um, you know, my English and Scandinavian counterparts. So, yeah, so that's a thing to watch out for. Um, if money's no object, you can pay for that and um, and then you can, yeah, go and have your big adventures. Okay, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to put that one into the back pocket because I, I don't see myself kite skiing across Greenland. I've got to say, I am really sad. You know, I love snow. I love it. I love it. I, 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 yes. I get the silence that you're talking about. I have almost fallen down a crevasse, but that was in oh. in in Russia actually, because we've both been down on the in the Caucasus in the Caucasus area oh, at yeah. different times. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, right. Yeah, I was about so, Elbrus. Where did you go? I was on Elbrus as well. Yeah, Willie oh. fell down a crevasse because um, why? Ah, uh, did I have crampons? Dumb. It was ter- it was honestly one of the most terrifying yeah. moments in my life, and I would have been the one that was bumping up the premiums. Except I don't even know that I had insurance at the time. Don't oh, say that. You know, I know. I would bones of the backside backpacking up to the base camp. I know. I don't know. Right? Can I? I, I should, I'll tell you. Yes, yeah, sorry. I've confessed that one. Anyway, go on. No, you can't. I was about to say. I'll tell you something that I don't usually confess. I don't think many people know, and that was that. I'm the first Australian woman to climb and snowboard down Elbrus. I might even be the first female in the world, but I don't know. Um, I've never come across anyone else, any female or male actually, who's ever done it. So I don't often say it because I don't know, but definitely the guide who was organising my trip who's been working on Elbrus for, you know, like 20 years has said that no female has ever done that. So mm. if we're taking his word, um, there you go. So I like Elbrus. Yeah, yes. I knew that. I actually knew that that was your claim to fame um, because yeah. yeah, Elbrus has got a weird. I was hiking it in late yeah. in late summer and early uh, in early autumn. So oh, the cool. snow was just coming in, and they were saying, you know, the Europeans they come over here and they ski it in mm-hmm. summer, but we ski it in winter because the Europeans yes. are too scared because there's no markings. So like, yeah, you know, there was no, no signs yep. to show you where you were mm-hmm. going to go off the cliff. But no. So it, this is all sounding very, um, uh, very much more macho than what I am. The <laughs> sad old me, woeful skier, snow averse yes. husband. My husband sees rain and he freaks out. When it's snow, it's like, oh my god, it's rain and it's cold. But I still absolutely adore winter. I adore the mountain scenery, yes. and and I'm going to say what is possibly a dirty word in your world, which is dirty three words: cross country ski. 
I'm so, yeah, I'm yes. so uncool. I'm so uncool. But I was, I no, did, just before, um, I did it a few times. And the last place I did it actually was just before COVID in Finland. You know, they have frozen lakes. And you yeah. get out there and you just shush across the lake. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it I, is you, beautiful. I think there are other people like me. I am not alone. Yes. I came to see aid. Um, mm. I like the idea of keeping all of my teeth. I just have this, you know, I have this fear of <laughs> running into a tree. Especially yeah. I have, I have, I have, um, plowed Whistler, like, you know, I've, I've done yes. it, but I know, so yes. I know it's not for me. Where should I be booking a ticket to? Okay. Well, the good news from you is, um, A, you write sometimes about taking out, you know, downhill sports. It's not you that's the problem. It's the other people that are on the slopes and, and cross-country skiing especially is having a massive renaissance because yeah. of the, the physical, you know, the love of the outdoors and also it's a great physical sport that you can do. But good news for you who might. Or anyone who's starting their ski journey is that you are gold for a ski resort. So a beginner who comes in, um, they will rent the equipment. They'll get the skiing, you know, they'll get the ski instructor. They'll want to stop for hot chocolate. Like they're just putting money into a resort. So, for example, Aspen Snowmass, who I work with, um, has just responded to that and built a twenty-five million dollar uh, beginner facility at one of their four mountains called Buttermilk, just for beginners because people come to Aspen because it's got you know, all the non-ski things that you would love, like, you know, world-class galleries, incredible restaurants, amazing shopping, all within a very compact And the reputation. So, yeah, yeah, and the reputation. It's got a great reputation. Celebrities and the kids. That's And then just, you know, and and lots of uh, ski professionals live there because the skiing's great. So they were, well, why don't we get these people out of the shops and into our beautiful, we'll make it so easy that we'll put the boots on for you, you know, facility at Aspen. So... So never downgrade yourself or apologize for being a beginner because ski resorts everywhere want your business. Mammoth Mountain, they have a special ticket for beginners that's a quarter of what it costs for everybody else because you only use a certain amount of lifts. And then even if you're no type of skier, snowshoeing um, or just like, or just sitting in front of a roaring fire while everyone's out freezing their butts off from the mountain and you're having a beautiful glass of Malloy by fire. I call that the Apre skier. I've got lots of friends who are Apre skiers. Uh, I'm a very good Apre skier. Yeah. And, and don't, don't ever discredit um, your amazing Apre skier skills because resorts want you, like they will make you feel welcome and they want you to come. And that's when all the fun happens. The other half come in from having their day on the slopes. You're all relaxed, waiting for them, reading your book. And then you get to have a great nighttime or lunch, you know, experience together. So that I really firmly believe there's a place for everyone in a in a ski area. Beginner, expert, you know, there's always a place for you in there. And that's what I like about the ski slopes. There's so much inclusivity. I love it. And now I'm going to ask you the last question, which may or may not be ski related, which is the question yes. we ask all of our guests. Your most mm. bizarre, and I think this is going to be a cracker, um, your most bizarre travel moment, your most <laughs> bizarre travel experience. Go oh on and Well, Well, I think you'll be surprised that it's actually a bit more um, soul reflective than you're probably expecting. I mean, I did think about the time that I tried to get picked up by Alanis Morissette, space drummer on a, a plane to Aspen. I was moving there and he was like, we've got a show, come with us. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, I've, I've got this interview in Aspen tomorrow. And then and that was a real sliding doors moment because when I got to um, land in Aspen, they were hiring for ski instructors at the airport. They were having more job interviews. That's how I got one of my first jobs there. And I thought if I hadn't said no, you know, I would have, you know, never ended up with the the 30, 30 years I've been working for Aspen on and off. 
Um, and then sure enough, uh, a few months later, another member of the band was on a chairlift overhead with a friend of mine who was an instructor. And I yelled out, we always used to, you know, um, I used to sing to him, I come from a da- land down under wherever we were across the slopes. And so I yelled out, I come from a land down under. And the, his client said, is that girl called Flip? Was she on a plane to Aspen three months ago? We have been so worried about her because I was like 23. And I think, uh, hello, drummer, um, I think I might have been a bit more unsafe in your hotel room watching the Lars Morrison thing. But the bell, but, and then you appreciate this. I went to Petra one time, you know, went up to one of the high places, forgot that it gets dark after you see sunset, almost got lost in Petra for three hours. Oh, that, that wasn't, yeah, that was, wasn't, that wasn't very smart. But I think my biggest one, when, when you pose that question, my most bizarre travel experience was when I did that Greenland trip across Greenland, it was April, May. So that, so already the you know continual sun was happening, midnight sun was going on, so it never set. And I've always been an early bird. Don't know about you, but uh, you know I'm a I'm a I, I'm a five thirty six o'clock rider. Have always been. I was a great rower because I was always you know up at five o'clock anyway. Um, and I did a story on circadian rhythms at one point, and you're born with a circadian rhythm. So. You are born to be the, you know, the fire lighter or you're born to be the hunter, you know, up early and you can adjust it according to your lifestyle, but it never really changes. After Greenland, I finished early because I got injured. I only got halfway and I went to Alula sat and I sat in an igloo, a beautiful luxury igloo, part of the Arctic Hotel. <laughs> Everyone goes, oh, that's so hardcore. It's like, no, no, I had Wi-Fi. Um, had Wi-Fi and cocktails. I couldn't walk because my feet were so cut up from my ski boots. So I was... I couldn't move fast. So I just sat there for three weeks waiting for my team to come in, just, you know, watching the icebergs go past the, the doorway. If, if no one's been up for little stats where all the, a lot of icebergs originate off a, a massive glacier, watching the midnight sun, making friends with the fishermen, uh, never walking far. And what happened when I came home, and I was, I, was, I was just divorced from the world for three weeks and I'd been on the ice cap for four weeks. So it was a several-week period of my life when no one could contact me except for by satellite phone for most of that period. And then, and then as I was sitting there, I was wondering what the effects of that trip would be on me. And when I came home, my circadian rhythm had changed. I could not get up before nine o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning and then wake up super slowly. And then when it was about four or 5 PM, I'd kick in and I was working through the midnight hours through the darkness. And it changed that, that went on bell for 18 months. I could not get my circadian rhythm back. And then finally, it just naturally went back into its natural rhythm. But that's something that's never happened to me before in my life. It was a direct consequence of the travel and the experience that I've had. And I've still found no one who is able to explain that. So that was a really bizarre time in my life where my whole lifestyle switched up from, you know, I'd start to fight the computer at 5 p.m. because I knew that I'd be working till 2. Like it was a really strange, um, yeah, time in my life that, uh, yeah, it was a direct thing from being exposed to some type of really extreme elements up in the Arctic and it stayed with me for a really long time. Yeah, well, the memory stayed with you even longer too, hasn't it? Yeah, beautiful memories, yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Flip, it's been an absolute joy having you on the pod and um, and I can't wait to read and uh, to go through the book and find the place that I should be, the place that is going to welcome me home. And um, and congratulations again on enormous, you know, and an, an, an Herculean effort for ultimate ski and snowboarding. That's <laughs> Herculean. And I cannot, I can't wait to see what you do next. That was Belle talking to Flip Burns, the author of the new book, Ultimate Skiing and Snowboarding, which includes trail maps and also advice from high profile locals and the best runs in different weather conditions. 
The book is published by Hardy Grant and available in all good bookshops. You can follow Flip on Instagram at The Adventure Mama and we'll put the details in our show notes and on our website at theworldawaits.au. You're listening to The World Awaits. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favourite podcast platform. This week, our handy little travel tip is about travel gadgets. So um, there are, I reckon, probably four staples, um, which are the portable charger. Um, of course, you know, if you, if you to keep your phone charged up, um, universal adapters, uh, noise cancelling headphones, and apparently the received wisdom has that personal Wi-Fi hotspots are the fourth essential that you'll carry. I don't know. What do you reckon about that one, Alistair? Look... I understand the hesitation, but, you know, on a uh, trip in my past to Noosa, of all places, uh, I found myself in dire need of a personal Wi-Fi hotspot uh, as the internet connection just wasn't enough uh, in the hotel that we were staying at to provide, you know, a stable and reliable connection and mobile phone coverage was spotty around the area. It is tricky in Noosa, yeah. Yeah, so look... That hotspot seemed to work as a Wi-Fi hotspot. So obviously having an iPhone, people could still call me and send me messages um, through FaceTime and iMessage and I could still use social media because I could not go two hours without that being active. <laughs> so it was definitely... Were you on holiday? I was. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> but look, it was definitely a much needed device for my drunken spa selfies that I was <laughs> sending out at that time. I've got to say, I've seen a few of those on your Instagram. Um, so is there anything else that you pack? Because you're a bit of a gadget guy, you know. Yeah. I've, I've got my standard stuff, you know, that just goes with me everywhere. And, I've, you know, but... but I, um, I can feel my partner's eyes glaring into me as you ask me that question. <laughs> I am a horrible packer. I'm an overpacker oh. uh, when it comes to, to travelling. Uh, but look, for me, definitely having my gadgets and the right housing for those gadgets is definitely important. Are you uh, going to give me a bag recommendation? Love I a good bag. Have, Go so shoot. look, I've I've done the research. The best that I found is from Bellroy, a local Melbourne company. They specifically have tech bags of different sizes. Uh, and the you know the bags have pouches for things like yeah. portable um, chargers, universal adapters. You can even fit in headphones into a few of them. Um, so for me, I have about four portable chargers <laughs> that all clip onto my phone, uh, and then I have a brick one that can you know provide a charge to even a laptop. So making sure that I've got that you know, those pouches filled and slotting them into my carry-on or to my suitcase. Bellroy have really done the legwork here. They've got bags and pouches to make sure everything slots in and fits perfectly so it doesn't roll around um, yeah. loose in your bag. Uh, they've also used quality recycled materials so you can shop responsibly as well. Uh, look, I love Bellroy. I've bought some stuff of theirs recently. I bought a man bag and, and I am, am shopping a man bag for, for my husband. Um, and uh, yeah, I, actually, I am literally just shopping for a for a new sleeve for my little travel laptop. And I think Bellroy's got the best ones because also they're not just in black as well. Because 
God, like it's boring. <laughs> it's just so boring. I'm over it. I'm I'm going through. I'm going into a new era of color, and I think um I think they're great. And you know, being a Melbourne company makes me proud. And also, the, as you say, the recycled um the recycled materials there. So yeah, that's a really great that's a really great recommendation. So um, is there anything else that you chuck in there? I I mean, I have an enormous amount of cables and stuff with me, and I kind of hate myself a little bit for it. But yeah, well, I, it, I think it just depends on what you're traveling with. So generally, like as journalists, we travel with a laptop. Yeah. Um, so for me, like when I chose my laptop, I made sure that it was a USB-C laptop. So I only need to bring one cord that will charge my phone, my laptop, my iPad, and my recharge and my noise cancelling headphones. Oh, you are so good. I do so not have that seamlessness that at all. That alignment, it, it takes a while, but it can really help with travel with just having one charger and one cord. That's a fantastic. That is a fantastic tip. I mean, clearly, you do not have um, uh, children who steal everything from you, because <laughs> I would have to have two, possibly three, of the same cable, which I yes. do. But yeah, I've got multiple chargers for everything. Everything is just random all over the shop. So, yeah, that's really that's a that's a fantastic idea for streamlining. Like you say, you're an overpacker, and then you blow yes. that tip out. I'm like, hey, <laughs> and well, I what think, he's talking about. I think overpacker comes to clothes and shoes. Um, I have been known to go on a one or two day trip with a large suitcase plus carry on uh, and have people look at me like I'm crazy, but you never know. You never know. Oh my gosh. You sound like my husband. You know, we were going away for the three weeks and I always count his shirts. And when it's above 30, I'm like, are you for real? You've got 30. He had 32 shirts in the last. He's going to kill me if he listens to this. He listens. I was like, he was like, oh, I think my bag is over. I'm like, dude, you have 32. And 32 just collared, like, T-shirts and collared shirts. I'm like, because, yeah, he's a peacock. Um, I'm going to leave it at that one. <laughs> I do have a couple of space-saving tips. I mean, I have one. Uh, I have an amazing travel adapter by a Swiss company, and it's um, called Scross. And it has, like, you know, 30 different countries' adapters in the one block which I find is amazing. And also it's got it's got um, USB plugs into it, so you're plugging them straight into the adapter so you can keep your laptop charged in and then you put the USBs at the top. And, I mean, they're not, they're not the cheapest, but um, as you say, I mean, I've run around the world and just, you know, had to dash into every supermarket in every country and buy an adapter that I've forgotten because I didn't realise that I had a one-day transit in Istanbul, which is different to you know, wherever I'm going next. So so um, this Scross adapter is, is a really great gadget to chuck in and they come in a cute little zipped up bag so it keeps them safe and, you know, stops um, kids from dropping food into the, into, the, oh, into the holes, which is never a great one. So there you go. There's my space-saving um, device for us. Fantastic. Um, 12 South also offer some really, really good travel products. Um, there is a universal charger that they have. Uh, it is a little bulky, so it would need to go into your main suitcase, but it will charge your phone, watch, and AirPods, or, you know, if you've got a pair of earbuds, it will charge them all on the one device at the same time, and that can save you having to take three, three or four different plugs for different devices I found that's really handy to have. If you're on the plane as well, they do have their AirFly Pro uh, Bluetooth wireless audio transmitter. 
which can allow you to use your headphones and connect wirelessly to the in-flight entertainment. Yeah, that's fantastic because then you don't have that cable that always gets stuck when the food tray comes to Maryland and you've got cables hanging everywhere. That's a really great one. I haven't done that yet, but I've got to say, because I used wired wired headphones just because, you know, I'm using them for for work all of the time. Um, But, yeah, I think that would be really cool. Okay, I'm going to look into that one. Alistair, thanks so much for some really great um, gadgets there. And we will drop them in the show notes and have a little more on our website too at theworldawaits.au. That's a wrap for The World Awaits this week. Click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favourite pods. You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.